Welcome to This Week in Men's Abs. I'm TJ. Thank you for joining me. I, too, like everyone else in the country, watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. It's an amazing miniseries, and there's a lot to unpack with it, so I needed some help. I got Dana back again to have a good discussion about the show, and I'm really excited to bring you our conversation. So here is Dana and I talking about The Queen's Gambit. Dana, welcome back. Thank you for having me, TJ. Happy holidays. And happy holidays to you. Thank you. Um, So, Dana, there's a little show that's been on Netflix that, like, everybody's been talking about, and it's called The Queen's Gambit. Have you been watching? I have. I have. Did you think chess could be so interesting? Not in the slightest. (laughs) No, me neither. Especially chess choreography. I didn't think they could make such interesting sequences of them just moving chess pieces around yeah I mean I I think it's you know before we get into like the nuts and bolts of like what the show is about if you don't watch this show for any other reason you have to watch it for the cinematography of chess playing and for like who knew that it was it's like a ballet on a flat surface but I guess all ballet is on a flat surface maybe that doesn't work (laughs) How profound. I love it. Um, uh, yes. I, but even like when it's, when it was sped up, when they were doing their fast round robin chess, like the, the, um, it's, it's like speed rounds or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when she was do, uh, simultaneous, when she was doing it with, with the, all of the games at the same time, it yeah. was just so fascinating. And then having them with the giant chess pieces uh, on the board where like the people Mm -hmm. watching it with the binoculars were moving the pieces. It was just so interesting. But probably the best choreography is when they had the animated chess pieces on the ceiling. On the ceiling, yeah. I mean, so for anyone, again, I feel like I say this every time I'm on your podcast, but for anyone who's been living under a rock for the last couple of weeks, um, Queen's Gambit is on Netflix. It is about an orphan teenager or an orphan child who, be, who uh, while at the orphanage, befriends a janitor who teaches her how to play chess. And it's set in the she's 19th She's incredible at it. Yeah. yeah, it turns out she's an idiot savant at chess. She, she does not go to school, knows nothing about anything else about this. And it's set in the 1960s. So if you're anyone like me, you just want to eat the costumes in the set at all times. Oh, the colors, the costumes, everything was so good. And it, it's just... It's fascinating for so many reasons. And the re- so when she's an orphan and she's at the orphanage, she sees the chess pieces on the ceiling because in the mid to early 60s, they were giving kids vitamins, quote, unquote, when they actually were like tranquilizers to make them go to sleep so that they didn't have to discipline them. Right. So this nine-year-old child has been given like probably... <laughs> Benzedrine or something, some sort of like numbing agent. And so she takes like seven of them at a time and starts seeing the chessboard on the ceiling. And so figures out all of these different moves. I love that I'm looking up at the ceiling like anyone can see me. I know, I'm loving this. No one else can watch this, but I'm seeing you do the hand motions like you're like, yeah, like I'm watching the the chessboard. Right, exactly. It's great. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating. And I want, you know, I think for anybody who has skill in something that is only them, I can't think of what mine would be right now, but you just have an eye for it. And watching this girl see the strategy of it all 
And I imagine that's probably what playing chess. I'm a checkers gal myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I just imagine that if you are a competitive chess player, you are seeing all of these moves like 900 uh, steps before you actually make them. It's incredible to watch. Yeah, I am not a chess player. The last time I played chess was one uh, was on like one of those giant chess boards on the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica on a date and I was awful. I was terrible at it. And I just was like, this is not the impression I want to be making right now. Not good. Um, so oh, I remember dates. Oh God. Remember going out. I'm under another stay at home order. Remember going out in public without a mask on. <laughs> remember that? God. I don't know what anybody looks like from the eyes down. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. So so this is like a completely chess is a foreign concept to me. So this was, I'm glad that they didn't dumb it down for us to be like, this is how you play chess. They just like jumped right into like, this is competitive chess. Like even 100%. her lessons with Mr. Scheibel were advanced. Like it was yeah. not the basic. Um, but I do wish that we had seen, she does spend a lot of time mulling over the board, replaying her moves, writing down what she's doing. I really loved the convention of the chess pieces on the ceiling. I would have liked to have seen that more or to see her like looking at the chessboard and having the pieces move themselves. I liked that. I liked mm -hmm. it when we could see how her mind works because there was a lot of us watching her think and I kind mm -hmm. of would have liked to have seen more animation when it came to that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I also think so. It was she um, is played by Anya Taylor Joy, which really she's kind of a newcomer in general. I, the only thing I knew her from other than this was the new remake of Emma. Period. It's very ah. important when you're doing when you're talking about that film of Emma. There, it's Emma period, the Jane period. Austen film, mm -hmm. or she's, she's a character, a new character on the show Peaky Blinders, which is also on Netflix. So, you know, she's a fairly newcomer actress, at least on the American scene. And, you know, it's interesting. I didn't enjoy her in either of the other two shows just because of the character she plays. So I wasn't super keen coming in being like, oh gosh, it's, it's Anya Taylor-Joy. I don't know. But she is fabulous. Well, she's in, like, every scene in this show. Like, there's rarely a scene that she's not in. Right. So I think that she is captivating. I, I, but also at the same time, like, I didn't know. There were times where I was like, is she doing too little? Or is she just doing so much that it looks like very little? You know what I mean? Like, yes. a lot of those times when she's playing chess and she's, uh, like, positioning her fingers in a certain way or she's, like, doing these, like, eye movements, I was like, are those acting tics or is this all choreography? I really couldn't tell. I genuinely think it's choreography because I think in a game like chess, again, checkers is my game. Indeed. Um, I think in a game like chess, sort of like poker, you're supposed to not be expressive about what your next move is going to be. And I think any sort of visual or, or physical mo movement is a tell and you never want to be vulnerable to the opposition. It's a game of strategy. So I think that those were probably choices that were she and the director sort of came to together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I definitely remember 
what the most vivid images for me are are of her hands, like just her index finger, middle finger, and her thumb, like moving things because mm-hmm. they do that shot a lot. It's shot beautifully, really. Yeah. I, I know I said that in the preamble, but I, I genuinely believe like the cinematography should definitely be, um, Emmy you know, worthy for this Emmy, year. Emmy, like, and he, oh, it, yeah, it's, it's a limited series, so it's going to be Emmy. I was like, is it Emmy? Is it Oscar? Like, I'm so confused as to how we're going to do award shows next year. I think everybody is. Yeah, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure this is going to fall into the Emmy limited series category, and this is going to probably sweep everything unless something comes along that just blows it out of the water. But, Dana, let's be perfectly honest. Let's, because mm, you and I are, are real when it comes to this kind of stuff. Yes. And everybody is like talking that this is the moment, this is the show, everyone's watching it. But right. when did it actually get interesting for you? Because it didn't grip me immediately. I, yeah, I mean, it's a slow burn for definitely, you know, it's, it's seven episodes. And I, I'm sort of looking right now, I'm trying to think when it gets interesting. To me, I, it was when she finally got out of the orphanage. Finally, I was like, okay, we're, get, we're getting somewhere. I know we had to do all of the orphanage stuff because she had to learn how to play chess. I get it. But it was finally when she gets out and like starts competing where I was like, now mm-hmm. we're getting somewhere. And then when she finally changes her fucking hair, I was like, okay, now we've got a story. Like it was yeah. like, once she like matures and the haircut is like now something interesting, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. she's a new person. She's feeling herself. She is a, uh, a chess phenom at 16, 17, whatever it is. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, she's a real person now. Got it. Yeah. So three. Yeah. I think it's episode three that really like it starts getting interesting. And so she's, she's out of the orphanage by this point and she's been adopted again in Cody fingers. Um, and her adopted mother finds out that she's a chess phenom. And not only that, you can win money playing chess. And she sort of really encourages her to go on the tournament scene. And they go to all of these random little tournaments just to get to the U.S. Open in Vegas so that she can win the big pot because all of these... And it's so funny sometimes watching stuff from the 60s with a 2020 bank account. And and she's winning $500 and you're like... $500. That's it. Yeah. And really for them, it's like $500. This is amazing. It's rent for five months. I know. (laughs) Yeah. It it does take a second to, to watch this and go, Oh wow. The extravagance that you could live on for $500. And I'm like, minimum wage sucks right now. Like that's where I am with my life. So yeah, I totally, I like the luxury of what you, what a little, a little goes a long way with uh, the money back in the sixties. Totally. Totally. And then her fashion starts to change a little bit. So you're just, you're not watching her be this like dowdy weirdo orphan person. Totally. And you get that, like you said, that her mother is encouraging her to go on all of these uh, tournaments and things like that. And let's talk about her mother for a second, because Mariel Heller is amazing. Yes, definitely amazing. It's a little depressing that she is only a year older than I am in real life. Really? Yeah. Mariel Heller is 41 years old. Wow. (laughs) I just threw you for a loop, didn't I? You did. I was not expecting this. Um, She, for anyone who doesn't know Mariel Heller's career, she's actually more of a director. She did that movie, uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, that Melissa McCarthy was up for an Oscar for uh, a couple Mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, She just did the- Which was so great. 
it was an underrated movie. I think that movie deserved to get a little bit more recognition than it did. But then she also just did The Beautiful Day in a Neighborhood with Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, and, and she's married to one of the Lonely Island boys. Really? Yeah. I found that out when I was Wikipedia for this conversation. Um, but she's phenomenal. Like, such an understated performance. But again, her relationship with Beth, I didn't always know how, Be- how Beth viewed her because like she kind of is like what do you think about making me your manager and giving me 10 percent? and i was like is she going to be roll her eyes at her is she going to be like woman what are you talking about and then she like was like well let's make it 15 percent." i was like i don't get your relationship because there are times where i'm thinking that you are bothered by her especially when she's flirting with the twins and it's like this weird i just don't understand i didn't understand the relationship most of the time well, I think it's it's interesting that you bring up their relationship because, and it sort of relates to where, on some level, the fact that I just pointed out how old she really is, could she have had a 14 to 15 year old daughter by that point? Absolutely. Yeah. But I think they're in this odd place where they're sort of mother daughter, but really like she's a companion. Like I think the point of them adopting an older child, at least from her from the husband's perspective is, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. I'm unhappy, but I don't trust her to be by herself without causing harm to herself or our home. So I'm going to, we're going to adopt this teenage, young teenage girl that's sort of just going to watch her and make sure she doesn't die or burn the house down. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't, and because Beth is a teenage girl, she probably was always on the border of being like, I'm bothered by you, but I also, uh, but you're also my friend sort of at the same time, but you're not really my mother, but I need a mother figure. So she was always just in this gray area that at any moment, her feelings for the mother figure could have changed at any given moment. I don't think you see it. And spoiler alert, dear listener, like, I don't think you see how much she meant to her until she, she dies. And again, it doesn't, at least even how she reacts, it doesn't look like she, she lost her mother. It looks like she lost a sister or a friend or someone she just had been very close to. Yeah. So I think that there is love there. It's just not what one could stereotypically call mother-daughter, even though she does call her mother. So. Right, right. All right, well, ultimately, in the end, uh, Beth's main goal in playing all of these tournaments now is to beat the Russians. Like, it's always, the Russians are the epitome of chess at this point. So (laughs) It's the epitome of the 60s, too, let's be clear. Like, we ought to beat the Russians at something. It's not going to be, it's not going to be the space race. Not going to be communism, but it's going to be fucking chess. (laughs) (laughs) So there's Borgov who is the premier Russian player, who she has set her sights on and who she has to go to. She meets him the first time, and it does not go well. (laughs) I I knew it couldn't go well because it was, we weren't close enough to the end. I was like, this is not going to go, where is we going to go if she beats him from here? I just didn't want her to fail as spectacularly as she does. But also, because she was so nervous, she went in with the best of intentions of being like, nope, I'm going to have this, but I'm still nervous. And then she allows herself to go out and have apparently a lesbian affair that we don't know about. Yeah, it was, it was weird. It was, you know, there, 
the the streamline of some of the extraneous parts of her life are very it's fuzzy. Yeah. Yeah. You're sort of like, I don't understand what's happening right now. Can we get back to the rooks and the knights and the bishops, please? Yeah, I wasn't we're going to get more to about the boys later, but let's talk about the girl for a second. Because I sure. thought when Chloe showed up, I was like, I, I kind of felt something when she meets Chloe in Benny's apartment where I was like, there's, there's a spark here. Cleo, not Chloe. Cleo, you're right. I'm sorry. Yes. So I wasn't entirely surprised that that's how it turned out. I just wish they hadn't kind of thrown it away so quickly. Yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. You're sort of hoping that there's going to be more to it and that maybe... The reason she's been so unhappy and like hasn't found something to click into because maybe she is in fact closeted, closeted homosexual. And so now she's found something and there's something that she can latch onto. But then it's so brief and it's not emotional at all. It seemingly is almost more physical than it is that. And yeah. And we don't even get anything. We just get them. They, they slept in the same bed. So we just have to imply that something happened. And then I thought maybe because when Jolene shows up, that we were going to get more of a, a relationship there because I thought maybe there always was something between her and Jolene. Like mm-hmm. she kind of could connect something be like, oh, here's this person from my past that I cared about. And uh, maybe this care is going to turn into something different. And then it doesn't. There's like no point to that happening. Yeah. But I, I also think the relationship between Jolene and Beth and Jolene is played by Moses Ingram, who I know we're going to talk about in a second because <gasps> just so many things so many she things. was so good and she's the only person who plays like the, a kid like from when she was a kid through an adult all the it way was through. it was amazing it was amazing to watch that transformation but that character jolene um is one of two characters who you know loves beth from the first moment they interact until their last moment on screen. And the other character is played by Bill Camp, who is the the janitor who teaches her how to play chess. And you sort of see him in the first episode and a half until she's adopted, and then you don't see him again. And even that storyline isn't really wrapped up in a nice little bow until the end when you find out again, spoiler alert, that he died. Right. And... She's one of the only people who goes to his funeral. And then she goes into the basement and sees every newspaper clipping about her, sees every picture of her and like how proud of her he was. And he funded her first. He, she wrote him for $10, I think, to go for her first tournament because mm-hmm. she didn't have the money. And, and she kept, he kept the note that she wrote him. And it was, yeah, he was like, he could not have been more proud of her. I actually thought he was going to be her father. Oh, interesting. Because we don't see, because in the flashbacks, the mother is having a fight with the father outside the window. You only sort of get like a, uh, a sort of view of him. You get him from behind. So I thought maybe since she never really knew her father, that it was going to turn out that he was her father working as a janitor in the school. Well, that's the other thing. It's, it's not really clear the situation with her mother either like you you sort of are like how she ends up in the orphanage you see that there's a car accident and that her mother has died but you know it sort of goes backwards you don't find out that her mother 
deliberately drove her car into someone else because she is obviously suffering from depression, probably um, because Beth was not a planned pregnancy and she got pregnant. Like, you're just, there is so much, again, and this is what I said before, that all the auxiliary stuff is sort of left to your own interpretation and imagination because there's no linear story as to what exactly is happening. Or not, not linear, there's no exposition. We never hear from Beth's mother about um, where her father is or how it came into being. We just see a fight take place outside the car. And then her trying to go back to the father and be like, I can't take care of her anymore. You need to take her. And he's like, it's too late. So yeah. like, there's, there is a very gray area for like her, where she came from. Her, her origin story is lacking. Origin from, story. That's, that's why they pay you the big bucks. That's true. Thank you. Sponsors. I need you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we don't get her origin story starts with Mr. Scheibel. It, there, it, the pre, the, the, the pre-orphanage is unnecessary, apparently. Yeah. We talked about her first couple matches with Borgov. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the last one. The last one is worth the price of admission, I think, for watching this whole show. Because she finally gets to Russia. She, like, wheedles down her competition. She meets the guy who wrote the, literally wrote the book on chess that she plays him. And he says she's the best ch- t- uh, chess player he's ever played. And so we finally get to facing Borgov. It is like the tennis, it is the the chess match to end all chess matches that's being narrated. It's the tennis match of chess. (laughs) I was. I was because it's being narrated like it's a tennis match. Like they're calling the thing outside. There's a little boy running to the spectators in the street so they could follow along at home. Like it is, it is, it is what the Russians want chess to be you know what i mean like right it's crazy and it is again with this who knew chess could be so exciting it is actually super exciting to watch 100 percent. i i agree um i also the, there were a few i know we, you said it prior that like it doesn't really give you the rundown of how to play chess however i never really understood what the clock thing was in chess I didn't either. I thought it was to kind of see how long it takes you to, how long it would take you as opposed to your opponent to make the moves. And it's more for your own thing. But I didn't know that you only got so much time to play around. Yeah, I didn't know that either. See, we learned something, Dana. We did. So it was educational. I like learning. Me too. So yeah, it, it becomes this epic, epic moment. And it's also, you know, we're jumping around a little bit, but since we're at the last match, as with her emotional evolution and, and her uh, skill level evolution also comes, and you know I got to do it, TJ, and anyone who's heard me on this podcast at this point knows, also comes her physical evolution. And her clothes, when she's in Russia, like, <gasps> they're so beautiful. They're really beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I, I did have to chuckle a little bit for the costume choice for the final scene when she is walking through Russia in her white coat that just perfectly um, flares out at the bottom and Mm -hmm. her white hat with the poof on the top. And I was like, you dressed her like a queen on a chessboard. She's a white queen. Like this symbolism was like, Dana, you and I, are as deep as a puddle of water when it comes deep to as a puddle like, of water. 
when it comes to interpreting things, but like we would have to be fucking stupid to not get that symbolism right there. Well, thank you, Gabrielle Binder, who was the costume designer for this. <laughs> she she needs she needs applause. She just she just does. She did a you did a wonderful job, Gabrielle. It's true. She the, I mean the costumes, like you said, were delicious. All the colors in the show were great. Um but of course, Dana, because it's my podcast and this is the theme. Um, ah, bring it on. We have to talk about the boys. Yeah, because, I think we should. Because, yes, we're talking about Anya Taylor-Joy and all of the girls and how great they are. But there are some, the boys are not as important as, as except as, like, teaching tools for her, which is great. They're it's nice to have. Parsley. In, they're stage parsley. <laughs> yes, they are indeed. Um, but so Gabrielle with her costume, would it have killed her to like get one of the boys to take a shirt off once in a while? Like, I mean, we got we got um, uh, Thomas Brody Sangster, who's like walking around with his open shirt like he's a rock star um, chess player, <laughs> which which wasn't bad. But when you think about we've known him since he was the little boy in Love Actually and also in Game of Thrones, like... I've seen you when you were a kid. It's true. I mean, unfortunately, at least for someone like me who who is not into the quite so younger man as you are, it becomes a little pedophile when you see people who you saw as children as adults and you're like, oh, apparently they're going to have a love scene now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that, that scene was so sexy. Oh, yeah. It was so yeah. sexy. It yeah. just was. And you're like... Uh, why, sir? Like, it's just, I had the vapors. You're just fanning yourself. Um, and then we also had uh, Harry Beltic, who's played by Harry Melling, who from Harry Potter grew up not bad. It, you know, it's so interesting. I've seen him in a couple things. He's also in um, His Dark Materials on HBO. Okay. Um, he's in that a couple of episodes, and you're just like, what's up, Dudley? Wait. <laughs> Um, but my favorite, though, was Towns, who was Jacob Fortune Lloyd. He is yeah. pretty. He's real pretty. He's real pretty. Um, and w- I- I surprised everyone by being gay on the show, I think. I didn't see that coming. I, you know, I didn't see it coming. There's just that moment where he's like, I, yes, this is Roy, my roommate. And of course, uh, Roy is, is in the stereotypical, like, I'm wearing a beach shirt with my Speedo, because these are the bathing suits we wear. You yeah, know. I, I mean, Tim Kalkoff was not bad in that Speedo, though. Not going to lie. And then the twins. Oh. <laughs> the Lewis twins. I mean, you, you know I like me some twins. And I, have, <laughs> I, followed these bo- I followed these boys on Instagram before the show. So to see them, I was like, oh, there they are. Okay, this is great, because they look really good in their little workout videos on Instagram. I'm not going to lie. Um, that would be, uh, Matthew and Russell Lewis, who, both of whose middle name are Dennis, by the way. Well, I mean, it's a family name. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but but maybe, but also because I'm a little bit, um, twisted in a way, because maybe I've grown up on porn a little too much. I find that shocking. Do do you though? (laughs) Do you think though, it's never like, um implied but when she's flirting with the twins in the rain at the pool like did they have sex do you think that they all had sex you have 
you have seen far too much porn. I'm just saying, in my version of it, that I want you I to know that every single one of our friends is just like saying something about you at this moment. They're like, "Who is it, TJ?" It's true. Well, also, <laughs> except no, for no, maybe no, Jared, who's just like typical. <laughs> yeah, and but but also he'll roll his eyes and go, "Yeah, they probably did." So let's be <laughs> let's be honest. So my answer to your really outrageous question is no, I do not think that they had sex. I genuinely think that those two guys, out of all the men in her life, are the least complicated relationship she has. That is probably true. They just, they were always there. It was nice, especially during her final round uh, playing Borgoff, when all of the guys in her life came together to be her support system. It's they- the best scene ever yeah they're all up all night on the phone to russia strategizing they're all in it together because they were all there a part of her life and her growth as a mm-hmm. as a chess player and they all were they were all won basically that match she was the vessel to help everybody win against the russians no i agree i think that scene is you know it's climactic in the sense that you know she's playing this this match and again chess is a solitary game but watching her have a team and watching her have a team of supporters that you didn't realize was a, a team of supporters. And, t- and I think she, the, she bet the character doesn't realize it until they call and they are there that she sort of realizes. And I think it's, it's something, you know, you and I are not orphans. We have families. But I do think that the family you find for yourself that you're not related to sometimes can be more significant. And I think that this is the moment where we see Beth has a family. And it's, yeah. it's not it's not a family she realized until probably that moment because she's by herself in Russia. She doesn't have anybody except this one Secret Service agent who is just a drag, really. Yeah, for sure. And so that when the phone rings, and remember, Towns actually comes to Russia. Right. So I think it, it's just a beautiful moment to watch all of these people that she has played defeated and like humiliated defeated. Yeah. Um, really. And, and on some level, emotionally humiliated, you know, she has that moment um, with both of the men that she gets involved with. With Benny um, and with Harry. Yeah. With yeah. Benny and with Harry that like she, because she's never, you know, we could get really deep with this and say, because she didn't know how to love and she was never taught love. She doesn't know how to love and all this other stuff. Um, she really mistreats them, but to have them come in, come come for her and and show up for her anyway. Like, I think that just enforces that she does have a a support system that she never knew she had after her mother dies. True. And I think it's also (laughs) important to, because Benny says the Russians play better because they play as a team, even though they are all individual, which is something Americans don't do. So this was the Americans treating the game of chess like the Russians do. Because even the, she sees the Russians strategizing uh, how to defeat her a couple times. So it was like, this is because um, Borgov, she catches Borgov watching, look, looking at her board and seeing what she did. And, and then she sees them in a room, like plotting things out. So this was, this was the American team chess team. This was the American chess team. Yeah. And I think you don't really, even in real life, you don't see things like that with competitive store sports or, any sort of competition in the United States, but you certainly feel it when there's a world cup, you feel it during the, you feel it during the Olympics. Um, 
you you just feel this sense of like we're Americans and we're yeah. going to do this as a team. Yeah. Like it's it's one of my favorite things both when I was bartending and 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 now just watching them at home where everyone wants to watch the Olympics. Doesn't matter winter or summer when the Olympics are on, they are on everywhere. It's what everyone is talking about and there's just a solidarity to it. And I don't think that that happens necessarily with competitive sports in the United States. Like there are people who are football fans and some football fans are divided as to NFL or college. Same thing with the NBA and with baseball. But when it comes to global sports, which this moment with, with the, you know, speaking to what you're talking about, about how the Russians strategize and then the Americans start to strategize with her at the end, it isn't until we're faced with a superpower from another place, and here we are again with, it's the 60s, so here we of are. course it's Russia. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> it's always yeah. Russia. Uh-huh. It, it, I actually had that conversation with uh, someone about, you can always tell who we as the United States are fighting in a war based on who our villains are in movies. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> when you're watching films from the like 30s and 40s and 50s, it's always Germans. And then you get to like the mid 50s through the mid 70s and they're always Russian. And then you get to the 70s and 80s and early 90s and it's always like the Syrians or the Libyans or something like that. And then 9-11 happens and it's always Afghan people or Arab descent people yeah. now and now here we are in the odds and the o's it's the russians it's, again it's the russians again and sort of the chinese <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you don't have to use this in the podcast but i just think it's a very interesting point to always make who, who are we who are we fighting internationally right now make them the villains yeah, right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um do you think she stays in Russia at the end? Or do you think she just kind of is like taking a break? It's, it's tough. It's tough. And I, I will stick to what I am saying. Um, that Scott Frank, I don't really know much of him as a director, but he directed this series. I have quite a bit to say about him in, on this series. And that, it, that we'll get to in a second. But he just leaves so many question marks throughout this show and here we are again with a question mark is does she stay in Russia I don't think so but what I love about that last scene and the last scene is she's supposed to go and what did you say she's supposed to go have have a talking conversation with the president of Russia or something like that no she was going to go home the the secret secret service agent hands her like talking points so when she meets I'm guessing it's Lyndon Johnson back in uh-huh at the White House that she has talking points she has to say because he keeps wanting her to say, I love America, I'm proud to be an American while she's on the press tour in in Russia. And she has no, she is, does not want to do it. She also didn't want to be like a representative for the Christian Guild, even though they were going to pay her way to um, to Russia too. She just wanted, yeah. she's like, I'm just, I just want to play the game. I don't need to make poli- make this politics or anything yeah. else. Which is why I think that last scene is so poignant because she gets out of the car. She gets out of the car that was sent for her to go to the airport. And she stops at this boulevard, which has just all these old men sitting at tables playing chess. And if you are 
from New York City or you have lived in New York City, you know that these guys exist in Union Square. They exist in Washington Square Park. Anywhere where there is a park in uh, Tompkins Square Park, there is always at least seven or eight tables of men playing chess and, so, yeah. and with, a, with yeah. a sign saying a dollar a game. And it's incredible that like people just do that. Um, and they're, they actually did a story on it during the pandemic that that is how some men actually make their money is sitting and playing chess with tourists. Um, oh, that's cute. Because it gets it does get like pretty heated after a while. Um, you know, those chess games. Um, but what I love about... <laughs> <laughs> but you're a checkers gal. If there were some I checkers am. board stuff, Dana, you would be there. <laughs> but what I like about that scene is that she goes back to the to the first time she played chess, which is sitting across from an older gentleman just playing the game. Yeah. And I think it's very poignant. So does she come back to the United States? You know, my my gut says yes. Like how long how how long is she living on her Russian winnings? Right. That right. She can live in Russia. I think she comes back, but I think she comes back on her own terms. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. I think that she, like you said, sits down to play the game gets back to her roots, essentially, gets to what Harry says, where he says he fell in, fell out of love with the game, and I think she just needed to remind herself that she liked the game at one point, like, across from an old man who she respects, mm -hmm. even just because of his age at this mm -hmm. point, like, in Russia. And it's like, I and she's just there to get down to, like, this is, this is, this is the root of the game, is just to sit in a yeah. park, and you don't have to compete, you can just play the game. Yeah, and I think it's a really poignant moment. So, and that's the only moment where I don't mind the ambiguity of it all. Yeah. Um, but I was reading somewhere, and I agree with this so much. Someone said, um, because Scott Frank, and I, you know, punish me if you want for being a feminist, anti-feminist, however anyone wants to take this, but leave it to a male director to show a woman hitting rock bottom getting drunk in her underwear in her house. Uh, yeah, I saw that article too. And I was like, yeah, all of that seemed very cliche. It was really cliche. So what we come to realize is through Beth's um, ascent in chess and her relation, developing relationship with her mother, she develops a drinking problem and a pill problem, which she already had from her childhood, we've seen. And it really gets bad. And she does, in fact, hit rock bottom. She just, it's, she's drinking all the time and she shuts herself up in her house and she hits rock bottom. But she also happens to be running around her house naked in a, well, not naked, in her underwear, in a sweater, perfectly quaffed and beautiful. Like, I'm sorry. I just, if, if I could throw myself into that situation, especially living in a pandemic world, I'm wearing some sweatpants and like a, a shirt that I have taught to walk and <laughs> just, yeah, no. I don't look as pretty or as sexy as that. And it's just like, bro, what's happening? What's I happening, know. Scott? Tell I know. And talk I know to me probably... about your issues with women. <laughs> and I mean, devil's advocate, it was probably a different time. Maybe women didn't just have like stay at home sweatpants or whatever, but like, it just seemed so like, Oh God, we have to see this again. We have to see another woman depressed, drinking herself stupid, passing out on the floor in a nightgown. Like, hasn't this been done to death? And a man tries to come and save her. Two men right. try to come and save her. It's like, right. bro, 
I, I, I don't know who you're trying to win over with this conversation, but maybe you should stick to what you're moderately good at and just stick to writing. I mean, Minority Report was obviously like your claim to fame and, and you won a lot of awards for, oh, wait. Oh, ouch. Ouch. Mm. Um, yeah, he's yeah. not. He's he's more of a writer than he is a director. So, I I I understand where he was going, and this might be just a classic case of you had really great actors and you just sort of pointed them in the right direction. Um, but yeah, his storytelling is okay. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that that was from what I saw in the article. That was the universally that was universally agreed upon as the worst episode of the series. And it's mm-hmm. kind of where it was like, that's where it started to get off track <laughs> and you needed Jolene to show up to like write the ship again. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah, and to snap her out of it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm glad it was a woman who did it instead of like one of the boys. Like, yeah, that was the, that was the right way to get back on track, but it just, we didn't really need to get that far off course in order to get to where we needed to go at the end, I think. Yeah, I mean, he directed all of the episodes, so I think, you know, he just obviously had a vision of how, of what it was supposed to look like, and that's fine. But, and you know, he's not wrong that women in the 60s had to deal with depression and emotional issues a very specific way. How everyone dealt with depression and, and emotional issues in the 60s was very different than we deal with it now. Um you know, if you've ever seen Girl Interrupted, like, that's a, a pretty great example of how they dealt with odd girls at the time. But yeah. what I just found really, not offensive, I don't want to use that word, but I just, I did not need to see her in her underwear and dancing around in her underwear. I think it really cheapened the moment. Yeah, and no, I you're think, not wrong. Yeah. I think there were other ways to show her spiral, which we get to later You know, she sees Jolene, she sees the other girl who she met at the first tournament, who sort of brings her back down to earth. And I just think that those moments where she sort of snapped back into reality are great. But again, cheapened by this odd, I I, I can't even call it a, a montage. It's just this odd moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And it's a shame because the show was otherwise pretty incredible. And it still is. I mean, I think it still mm-hmm. is a, a, a like we were talking about from the beginning. You know, it's the moment. It's it's the show right now that I think is on everybody's lips. So yeah, I think so too. Thanks for taking the time to to chat with me about it. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks again to Dana for joining me. If you have anything you'd like to contribute to our conversation, feel free to tweet us at This Week in Abs. Also, the boys we talked about will be on the Instagram at This Week in Men's Abs, which is also the email address, thisweekinmensabs at gmail.com, and my own personal Twitter and Instagram, which are both at Truman Jasper. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all again next week. All right, bye.